Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Strange Pathways. I'm your host, Scott Mort. My wife and I have been having an absolute blast listening to a podcast. I want to tell each and every one of you about this podcast. It is it's simply amazing and it's so much fun. It's called Coast to Coast PM. Uh, two brothers take an episode of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell or George Norrie, Connie Willis, Ian Punnett, any of those any of those icons and dissect it to sometimes humorous results. If you don't have a lot of time and and I realize you don't, the two episodes that I have really, really enjoyed have been the Antichrist lines and the frantic Area 51 caller. Go out there, show them some love. It was absolutely fantastic. Our first tale takes us back to January 18th, 1978, between the times of 3 a.m. and 5 p.m., Fort Dix and McGuire Air Force Base, Burlington County, New Jersey. It's not his real name. Jeffrey Morse, not his real name. Jeffrey Morse was a military policeman. He got the order to go to gate number five of McGuire Air Force Base. His job was to allow a state trooper to enter the site. An alert had been issued. The trooper wanted to access the runway area, which led from the back of the airfield and connected to a wooded area, which was part of the Fort Dix training area. Now, this trooper told Morris that a Fort Dix military policeman had been pursuing an object that was flying at a very low altitude. This object was oval, featureless, and glowing with a greenish-blue color. Now, this, this object had hovered right over the MP's vehicle, and then a thing appeared in the front of the car. This thing was about four foot tall, grayish brown, long arms, a slender body, and a fat head. Now, as many of us, the MP panicked and fired five rounds from his forty-five caliber handgun into the body of this entity. And then... One more, for good measure, into the flying object above him. The object then shot straight up into the air. And it joined. It joined with 11 other objects high in the sky. The alien, wounded, ran off into the woods, escaped over a fence between the two bases, but then collapsed and died on the runway to which the state trooper had requested access. Even though Morse was just hearing about this, there were already several other military individuals involved. But 
it was Morse and the state trooper who found the body of the alien. It had climbed over the fence and died while running. Even though Morse and the state trooper were very, very shook. After years and years of training, that training kicked in. And they still followed normal crime scene procedure. They roped off the area. And then eventually, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations came over. Morse was relegated to just guarding. But he could still see what was going on. There was a, there was a very, very bad stench starting to come from the alien's body. Something kind of, but not quite like ammonia. Now, Morse was often within 40 to 70 feet of this body on runway number five. He was never close enough to kind of look at the finer details, like hands, feet, what have you. But what he could see was a naked, hairless body. Skin, wet, shiny, snake-like. Now, Morse was kind of offered the suggestion by MUFON that this creature could have been a deer, maybe an escaped ape from a nearby military experimentation lab, but Morse went, no, there's no zoo nearby. Now, we do have a problem with deer on the runway, but nobody ever makes this big of a fuss over a deer. And then there was that strong smell of ammonia. Now, later that day, a Blue Beret-wearing team from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base arrived. They came in on a C-141. Big, massive crafts. And they approached the body. They sprayed the corpse with a material projected from a portable tank before covering it with a white sheet. And by the time the sun rose, the body had been carefully set down on a platform and a wooden frame built around it. On this frame was placed large square metal containers about 10 foot by 10 foot with strange blue markings. These men then loaded this kind of box-in-a-box container into the plane using a forklift and left. Nothing more was said. No report made. No chatter. In fact, Morse and his... his state trooper friend they were told they'd be court-martialed if they said anything about their experience two days go by Morse and other people who were there that night they were brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio and interrogated 
hard. And they're warned again, do not talk about the incident. Now Morse, Morse can remember the names of the interrogators from his memories of their name badges. Their identities have been verified. It's, that's, that's a lot. Now, I wasn't able to find anywhere that these identities, these verified identities were listed for good reason. Morse's life would be in danger. Morse then returns to McGuire Air Force Base and was questioned more, debriefed by a commanding officer, a lieutenant colonel. Each of the airmen involved in this encounter transferred overseas. Morse was shipped off to Okinawa in Japan. The strangeness does not end there. October 1986, Morse goes on a trip back to the United States to visit his family. While in California, he's detained. And they're not really telling him why. Morse ended up filing a lawsuit against the California authority. And notified a MUFON interviewer. Now, this MUFON interviewer, his name is Stringfield. He needed to return in January of 87 for court appearances. As Morse is laying over in the United States, he, he finds he can't learn anything about why he was detained. Or, or why why anybody would want to, or who did it. It was all stalled in red tape. I feel horrible for anyone in the military who, who comes across a case like this. Because it really seems, it seems as if Now your loyalties have been divided. At least they would be with me. Do you you take the orders from on high? Do you keep your mouth shut? Do you spend the rest of your life keeping the secret from your family, your friends, the public at large? Something, Something has happened that humanity as a whole should be aware of. Or, do you go forth? Do you risk your safety, the safety of your family, your friends, of anyone that you talk to? It's, it's not an enviable position.
Our next tale takes us all the way back to the morning of November 24th, 1978. Our witness is one Angelo D'Ambrose, who was born in Ferra Vincenza, 1917. Now, Angelo had had a lot of jobs in his life. He was a bricklayer, worked in a car wash, and what have you. That day, though, he had went into the woods on the mountain slopes that overlooked that town. He, he was going to cut some shrubs to get some firewood. It was around 11.45 a.m. And he starts to, starts to see something odd. He turns to lay down a branch that he's just cut. And he sees two beings. At first he thinks they're human. But then he realizes that these beings, they're not human. In fact, D'Ambrose would call them two beasts. These beasts, as he calls them, they're about a meter, a meter and a half tall. And whenever he first sees them, they were side by side. Immediately after the, afterwards, though, the smallest being, who Ambrose estimates to be about 60 centimeters tall, he begins to move in very rapid jerks. And the largest, who is about 80 centimeters tall, he moved too, but very little. These things, they're always off the ground, though about 30 or 40 centimeters off the ground. They were thin, pale yellow skin. He said the yellow skin was pulled over their bones to such an extent that he could see like veins as thick as a pencil on the head and the hands. They have elongated pear-shaped heads. No hair, no eyelashes, no eyebrows. And the ears on these creatures, they're, they're about as long as those of a donkey. They rose vertically, vertically ended in a point. Two white eyes, sunken, almost flat with the head. The diameter of these eyes were about three centimeters, no lids. And there was a long nose. A nose that was so long, it almost reached the upper lip. The mouth was kind of like ours, maybe a little wider. But at the ends of that mouth, two large white teeth, tusks stuck out about three centimeters. They had a chin, very thin chin. Now these two beasts were covered in a dark suit. He said it almost seemed as if black, gray, and green had been mixed together. These suits, very skin tight. 
They covered up the arms up to the wrists, the legs just below the knees, the hands, the rest of the legs, barefoot, up to the neck. They had five fingers, but they were very long, about 25 centimeters long. The nails were about five centimeters long. As soon as D'Ambrose sees these beasts, he is frightened. He is scared. And he shouts. He hopes that somebody would be nearby and, and rescue him. He doesn't know why they're there. He doesn't know what they have in store for him. These things, though, they say something to him. Incomprehensible mumbles. D'Ambrose looks the tallest one in the face and goes for his knife. Now, he has a bill hook. That's a, a large hooked sickle. He takes it from the non-cutting part of the tip and tries to, tries to go after them with it. He firmly grasps the handle. And then the beast tries to snatch the knife from him. D'Ambrose feels this, this little electrical shock going through his, his hand and along his arm. But he's not letting go of the tool. He's, he's convinced that this is what's saving his life. Possession of this knife. This creature, though, just keeps giving him shocks. And he's only, to, only able to hold on to this because of the adrenaline rushing through him. He would, if it wouldn't have been for that, if he would have just been just a little bit less strong, this beast would have had his knife. No one's answering D'Ambrose's cries for help. This is all he's got. That fear that D'Ambrose felt, that fear turns to anger. He, he lets go one hand. One hand, he lets go of his knife, that bill hook. He bends a little bit. And grabs a large branch. And he decides, I'm putting an end to this. I'm going after them. Now these beasts, and I'm only using that term because that's what D'Ambrose called them. These beasts, they see this. The smallest turns and starts to run, float away. And the larger, the larger follows. 
he's D'Ambrose is starting to get calmer. That anger is still there. And now he's curious. He's hit that very human state of this is my new normal. So let's find out about this. And he starts to run after them. Now these things are floating along this mule track. And they're floating away from him pretty fast. They go around this sharp bend. And D'Ambrose loses sight of them. He... He continues to look around for them. And then, behind a large fir tree, about 30 meters away, he sees this object. It's raised up on all fours, and it's about three feet above the ground. In his own words, he says, the shape was like the one you get by placing two saucers on top of each other, but slightly more oblong. At the top in the center, there was a small dome, bright red in the upper part, including the dome. The device was blue in the lower part, while a white median strip clearly separated the two differently colored bands, and the four legs were aluminum gray. The object, four meters long, two meters wide, and he noticed the upper part where the dome was. He sees that That long, spindly arm of one of the creatures close a trapdoor from the inside. A few moments later, this object takes off. No noise. A huge amount of speed. And a red blaze. All this happened in the span of four minutes. D'Ambrose came home, tells his wife, I don't want to have lunch, and just locks himself in a room. Now, D'Ambrose's wife, his daughters, they were worried about him. Are you sick? Just leave me alone. Finally, dinner time came around. And he sat down at the table. His daughters are there, so is his wife. So is his son-in-law, Luciano Minari. He, D'Ambrose looks at Minari and says, If you had seen what I saw in the woods this morning, you would not have the slightest desire to discuss these things. The son-in-law goes, what happened? Minari is curious. He's sympathetic. He's perplexed. D'Ambrose has been serious this entire time. Now, November 25th, Minari, around 2 p.m., 
he goes with D'Ambrose to where it happened. D'Ambrose points out to his son-in-law, Munari, the exact spot where the object was. Munari goes over and finds in the clearing the circular area about three and a half meters in diameter. The grass is black. Now, it's not burnt. It's, it's almost like it was oiled. It's flattened, rotated counterclockwise. Munari decides he's going to touch this grass. Now, even though this grass looks like it's, it's oiled, Munari's hands remain completely clean. He's, Munari is convinced that something happened. It's, it's, it's bugging him because he believes his father-in-law. He has seen the evidence. Something happened. Munari decides he's going to go back and take photos But that night, it snows. It's not until December 3rd, eight days later, that he's able to go back. They shovel out the snow where the craft was. Can't really see anything. When pressed by an investigator... Do you think you could have been hallucinating? D'Amber goes, absolutely not. I believe that UFOs exist. It breaks my heart all that evidence was lost. But we were in the era that people didn't carry cameras with them all the time. And I am... I just want to I just want to say I'm so extremely thankful that D'Ambrose had a caring and understanding relative his son-in-law who was willing to go with him to look at the evidence. That means a lot. The time may come that a family member comes to you and asks you Something along the lines of what D'Ambrose asked of Munari. Try to, take, try to take a lesson from him. Be understanding. Be caring. And go out there with an open mind and love in your heart. Our last tale comes to us from the absolutely amazing phantomsandmonsters.com. I bet you're all sick of hearing me say that, but it is just an absolutely amazing website. Lon Strickler has done such an amazing job. Absolutely amazing job. I don't know when exactly this takes place, but it seems to be fairly recent.
our witness is named SK. Now, SK's family owns about 360 acres in northern Oklahoma. And that, that land has been in their family for quite a while. It used to be that the family would meet there Thanksgiving, Christmas. But now, it's SK is really the only person that goes there. And they really go there just to train with the firearms. Now, he arrives. I'm assuming SK is a he. But SK arrives around 2 p.m., sets up the targets, and something just feels off. SK uses an electronic headset it cancels out the noise, but it amplifies the ambient noise. And they notice something that happens a lot in missing 411 cases. Everything stops. No wind, no birds, no bugs, nothing. Complete and total silence. SK runs their normal drills, shoots off a couple of rounds. The sun starts to set. There are odd smells. Like, SK, SK calls it like a dirty litter box plus body odor. It's at that point that SK notices coyotes crossing the field west of him. It's it's like the coyotes are avoiding entering the woods, which is really strange seeing as how SK for the last how many hours has been shooting off round after round after round. Then SK starts hearing interference come over the headset. It sounds like disembodied voices speaking in a strange language. SK whips off the headphones. He can't hear them with his ears, but he puts them on and he can hear those voices. SK is starting to worry and starts gathering his things. And that's when they hear screams coming from the woods. Sounds like a woman just letting off a blood-curdling scream. SK is no stranger to the woods. They've heard mountain lions, bobcats, owls. It's not that. About the same time, SK feels like they're being watched. But not... Not that somebody staring at the back of my neck kind of watched. A nauseating, omnidirectional feeling of being watched. And then they hear the footsteps. Footsteps going through the foliage in the tree line, 30 yards from where SK is standing. These footsteps are oddly human-like. He's 25 miles from the nearest populated area. 
quite literally, in the middle of nowhere. SK pulls out their phone to take a video. Now remember, it's sunset. They start scanning the tree line with the flashlight on the phone. Standing behind the tree at the edge of the tree line is a black, tall silhouette. Spindly limbs, pale face, looking directly at SK. SK captured a still image of it. You can see that image over the Strange Pathways Facebook page or on our Twitter. SK gets about 50 yards from the truck. They're running. The light post on the property suddenly cuts off. Now SK is running blind. They're just taking a guess as to what direction to run in. And SK is hitting that unlock button. Just getting those lights to blink. SK gets in the truck. Speeds off. They've got their eyes on that rear view mirror. And the light post turns back on. Is this... Is this what happens to some of the people in the missing 411 cases? I've said it before. There's there's a lot of stuff that I believe David Paulides exaggerates, fabricates, and lets out of his missing 411 reports. I think I even said it last week in that show. But that doesn't mean that there is nothing supernatural in the woods taking people. Is, is this one of the things out there in the woods that takes people? Or would this be something in the woods that would have disposed of SK and replaced him? His family... Wondering why he's come back, not acting quite right. We hear of it all the time. Steve changed. Laura isn't the person she used to be. I don't know what happened to Bob. He used to be such a nice person. And the ever popular. They were a good neighbor. They were so quiet. Is is it worse to go missing or to be replaced? Fey folklore has it happen all the time. And I believe that those myths well 
It wasn't me that said it. I can't even really remember where I heard it before. But a myth is nothing more than history wrapped in a lie. Thank you for joining us once again here on Strange Pathways. Be sure to check out our Twitter, Pathways Strange, TikTok, and Instagram, Strange Pathways Podcast. Head over to our Facebook. We're going to have a lot of photos up dealing with some of the cases that we talked about here today. And if you'd like to, please get a hold of me, strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com. Be sure to hit like, comment, subscribe over on the YouTube channel, even though YouTube is so frustrating. Thank you once again for joining us here. Take care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.